So uh, who enjoyed the uh, throwback music this morning? I thought about that as, as we were singing. Um, <clears throat> my, uh, my cousin uh, Kelly is in town, and some of those songs, especially that first one was one that we used to do all the time when the two of us were in our youth band back in the 90s in Oklahoma, and uh, brought back some good memories. Made me feel a little bit old when I see the dates up there, like 1996 and 1998. We have uh, a youth pastor who isn't as old as some of those songs, and so uh, it kind of made me feel old. Something else that might make you feel old, curious, how many of you uh, grew up watching the show The Jetsons? Any of you? So I don't want to like make you feel old, but today is the day George Jetson is born, okay? <laughs> like according to the Jetsons universe, somewhere today, I'm assuming in our country, because he sounded American, somewhere Somebody is giving birth to George Jetson today. So uh, hopefully, you know, and I'm, I'm assuming he's about my age there. In about 40 years, we've got flying cars and all that. We'll, we'll see if that happens. So uh, glad that you're here with us. Got a question for you this morning as we get ready to jump in. How are you doing? Okay. Those are the answers I was looking for. Yeah, when we first get here on a Sunday, that's typically what we ask everybody, right? How are you doing? And typically, those are the responses. Good, great, no, not so bad. What happens when somebody goes, you know, I'm not doing very well? What's our response? Exactly, right? Awkward silence. Because we don't really know how to respond when somebody says, I'm not doing real well. I used to work at a, at a QT when I was in high school or uh, in college. And, uh, of course, that's the thing you ask everybody. And you learn very quickly to stop asking people at QT, how are you doing? Because they're going to tell you. And I'm like, okay, listen, I'm not trying to sound inconsiderate or like that I don't care, but there's a line of people and, you know, like their slurpees are melting, so we got to rush this thing up here. So maybe come back later when we're not so busy. No, we ask that all the time. How are you doing? And if we're really, really honest, we probably don't care to the depths of what somebody's willing to tell us how they're doing. It's just kind of a way of being polite. It's a greeting that we give one another by asking how you're doing. We'll kind of come back to that here in just a moment. Today we are wrapping up our series called Name Dropper. Uh, we've, we've spent the last five weeks or four weeks, five countings a day, looking at these different names of God from Scripture. And, and the whole idea has been the more we understand who God is, the more we start to understand what he's all about and what he means in our lives. And so we've looked at names like Yahweh, where it's just kind of defined as God is, I am, was kind of the, the statement of that name, or El Shaddai and the power of God, or Jehovah Jireh, God the provider. Last week, Brad talked about Jehovah Rapha, the, the healer. Uh, today, we're going to wrap this up, and to do that, we're going to look at a story from the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. So we're going to be here for just a moment, and I'm just going to kind of summarize this story for you, but first I'm going to summarize the book of Judges, because if you're not that familiar with the book of Judges, it, it takes place in the timeline of Israel where they have gone in and they've, they, they've settled the promised land. Moses and Joshua are now gone, but it's before the days of the kings, before the days of Saul and then David and Solomon and the kingdom and all that, and, and so... It kind of worked like this. There's a pattern we see in the book of Judges. Israel seems to be doing well because God has delivered them. 
And they're living in prosperity, and he's blessing them. And, and after a while, that kind of goes to their heads, and <clears throat> they decide that they don't really need God, and they rebel against God, and they start to act evil in God's eyes. And so God hands them over to be conquered by an enemy, and that enemy persecutes them and, and enslaves them. And so in their desperation, they cry out to God, and God delivers them, and they start doing well and living in blessings and prosperity, and they don't need God anymore, and they start to act evil, and God, it's kind of this cycle. We just see it over and over. It's like they can't get out of their own way. One of those examples is in Judges chapter 6, where Israel's been doing well, and it says in the very beginning of the chapter that they started doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he gave them over to a group of people called the Midianites. Midian comes in, they wipe out all the crops, they wipe out all the livestock, they, they really just take Israel's knees out from underneath them. And of course, they're in desperation, so they cry out to God for help. So God has mercy on his people and he raises up a prophet and eventually appears to a man named Gideon. And he calls Gideon to go out and to save his people. And Gideon, I think, responds to God like so many of us would respond to God in this situation. Because God tells him what to do, and Gideon's response is, prove it to me that you're really God. So God does. He proves it to Gideon that he's really God. This is an angel of, of God that's there. And when the angel proves to Gideon who he really is, it says in verse 22 that Gideon was just kind of shocked. That he was staring, he realized he was staring face to face with an angel of God. He's probably a little bit startled, maybe scared. I mean, I, I can just speak for myself. If I realized this was an angel of God staring me face to face, I would probably not even know what to say. And so the story moves on. In verse 23, Gideon is told this by God. Through the angel, the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. Think about this verse here for just a moment because this is the number one command we get from God to his people throughout Scripture is the command, Do not be afraid. And I think about this because it's lumped in with the word peace. And, and I was asking myself the question, I don't know if I've got an answer to this, can you truly have peace if you have fear? Are those two things opposites? If, if you have complete peace, can you have fear? I don't know necessarily the answer to that. I don't know if that, that's not really a rhetorical question, but I don't know that I have the answer to it. What I do know is that Gideon, whether it was instantly or if it took him a moment, at the very least accepted that God was telling him to have peace. Because in verse 24, it says, Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it, the Lord is peace. In this translation of the Lord is peace, we get our final name of God for this series, because the Lord is peace translates all the way for us to Jehovah Shalom. That's the name that Gideon gives to God there. And it translates directly to God is peace. And I think that's an important order of words there. God is peace. That doesn't mean that peace is God. We think about this sometimes. We try to make peace God. We want to have peace, whether that's with other people, whether that's internally, whether that is, however it may be, we want to have peace in our lives. We think if we remove conflict that we've got peace, and, and that's what we seek so much that often that's actually what we worship. We kind of confuse the idea of being a peacekeeper with having peace. You think, well, if I keep the peace, if I settle scores and, and I try to help people reconcile their differences or I reconcile my differences or I, again, remove all these conflicts and these obstacles to my peace, 
We read what Jesus says in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Those are noble things. We should strive for that. But that's not the same as having peace. I think some of you might understand that a little bit. I asked you a question back at the beginning of the sermon. I said, how you doing? If we were to put ourselves into the Old Testament, or really into any time of the Bible, into the Jewish culture, maybe even to some circles of Jewish culture today, we wouldn't ask each other how we are doing as a greeting. We would greet each other with a one-word greeting. It's the word shalom, what we just mentioned a moment ago. And again, the word shalom translates directly to peace, but if I were to greet you by saying shalom, I'm not just greeting you by saying the word peace. What that shalom actually means in that context is, I'm asking you, how is your peace? That's what the Jewish people would greet each other with. How is your peace? In particular, they're asking, how is your internal self doing? That's what they're asking you. And we know this because internal self can often be uh, taken away from or independent of our external circumstances. You probably know what I'm talking about here. Like we've all seen somebody who they have it all together, at least on the outside, right? They've got the perfect job. They've got the perfect uh, family, the perfect spouse and wonderful kids. And, you know, they're, they're, everything looks great, but, man, there's just something missing. There is turmoil, there's emptiness, there's loneliness on the inside, there's brokenness. Or on the flip side, you've seen somebody and their life just looks like it's a wreck. But inside, they are at complete peace. And you're like, man, how are you holding it all together? We've seen people on both extremes of that. Your internal self is often independent from your external circumstances. And when you can find that internal peace, that shalom... That is what it means to know the God of peace and that God is peace. So let me ask you a question. How is your peace? I asked you earlier, how are you doing? How is your peace? If you're uh, new here with us today, you might be asking that question yourself. Man, I, I don't have good peace. I, I don't know what peace looks like. I think I know peace, but the more you talk about it, no, I don't think I know. Or maybe you're a regular here and, and you're like, you know, I've had it, but I, I currently have kind of lost it. Well, you might be asking, what, what's, what's peace look like? What's this peace of God you're talking about? What's, what's it even look like saying God is peace? What's it look like? How do I get it? How do I hold on to it? Well, this is a, a little different approach today. I told the 8 o'clock crowd this. Some weeks when, when I'm sermon writing, man, it just lines up in a three-point format. It's just natural. Some weeks it doesn't. This is one of those that doesn't. I'm just kind of going from point A to point B and asking you to come along for the ride with me. So uh, this is where we're going to kind of go. And I'm just going to give you a couple of thoughts on this and then try to bring it back full circle at the end here. If we want to understand what it means to say God is peace, I think we need to understand just a couple of ideas first. The first thing to understand is the peace of God. Understand what this is. We can't say God is peace and understand that without understanding what the peace of God means. In Philippians chapter 4, there's a very famous passage where Paul is telling us to not be anxious and to not have worry. And he goes on to say, in everything you do, give thanks to God and ask him for what you need. And he says in verse 7, if you do that, then the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a verse that many people have highlighted in, in their Bibles. Uh, it's a verse that many people have memorized with good reason. 
We all have times we struggle with worry or anxiety. And he's telling us right here, no, that peace of God, it's so beyond anything you can understand, it's going to make that wrap around you and, and make you feel whole. Go back to a moment ago. The people whose lives look like a mess, but they have it all together internally, this is what it's talking about. You're like, this makes no sense. It's not supposed to. It's the peace of God. It transcends what we can understand. It's both simultaneously simple and complex in this, this way. It's the peace of God we have when we are at one with God. And the thing is, the good news is, it's a product simply of our faith, of our appreciation, and our submission to God. That's it. But it requires something from us. It requires complete humility and total courage. That's what true faith in God requires. You want to understand that peace, you have to be able to humble yourself more than you ever have and give yourself fully to God. We find an example of this very early in the Bible. I mentioned Adam and Eve a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about uh, Jehovah uh, Jireh and how suddenly what God provided for them wasn't enough. But we see in Genesis 2 what a complete peace of God looks like because God would actually come into the garden and walk with them. Like, like the, the, I just picture this, that God interacted with Adam and Eve the way we interact with one another. There was a complete wholeness there. But we know very quickly what happens. Adam and Eve, that's not enough for them. The, suddenly they need more. They need more for fulfillment. They need more for, for joy. They need more to give them something in their lives that they feel like they are missing. And that's where we often find ourselves. We start looking for peace or we look for completion apart from God. And when you do that, when you look for peace apart from God, that's exactly where you'll find yourself, apart from God. We do this, though. We try to manufacture our own peace through things we can purchase through experiences or, or destination trips that we can go on, through relationships with one another, even through promises we're made by earthly figures. We've got an election coming up this week. We've got another one coming up this fall. And like always, we tend to hear this is the most important election we've ever had. Seems like we hear that every two years. And folks, I can tell you, none of that can give you the peace that God can give you. Now, those are wonderful things, right? The ability to, to be blessed with things to bring us joy in our lives, whether we buy them or whether we travel to see them or, or it's, it's one another. These are wonderful blessings in our lives, yes. And yeah, they can bring joy. They can bring happiness. They can bring fulfillment. But all of it is temporary. All of it is fleeting. But that's what happens too often. We try to find peace apart from God, and that's where we find ourselves is away from him. And when we get away from him, suddenly we're not going to find his peace anymore. I like how Jack Wellman said it. No one can have the peace of God until they are at peace with God. Okay, what's that mean? What's it mean to say that we can't have peace of God unless we have peace with God? Let's talk about that. Peace with God. Uh, peace with God is a little different. It's a little easier to figure out and a little easier to attain, but also sometimes harder to attain. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that we have it, that it's there. He says in Romans 5, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this verse, and I love the whole passage that follows it, but I'm just going to camp out on this one verse here. Because he gives us a couple of promises here saying that we have peace with God. 
the, the word that he uses here for peace is the Greek word irene. And you look throughout scripture itself, not, not even counting all the other ancient literature, throughout scripture itself, irene has so many different uses. It's always used in, in terms of peace, but it can refer to national peace, national security. In fact, that's kind of where Paul's getting at with this because Rome promised national security and national peace. They had what was called the Pax Romana. In other words, if you don't mess with us, you don't mess up our peace, we will give you complete security and safety. We'll protect you. You'll be fine. But when you mess up our peace, we can't promise you that anymore. Or, or the piece that he's talking about here in Irene could refer to a personal sense of security or safety or prosperity even. But what Paul is getting at, the, the, the angle Paul takes with Irene here is not just personal security and safety, it's internal. It's internal safety. It's internal security. It's the sense of our internal well-being and, and health. He's saying we have complete peace with God. And I love the wording of this because irene comes from the root, uh, the root word iro. Iro means to tie things together, to take multiple things and to make them into one. And then you take the word he translates into with. The Greek word is prose. It indicates motion toward a certain object. We talk about being with God. It means we're moving toward God. So what's that all mean? When you translate this whole verse out, when we say we have peace with God, really the way you could translate this out is the more you move toward God, the more you will experience peace. The nearer we move to God and toward God, the more wholeness we'll begin to experience with him. That's what it means to say we have peace with God. We're moving toward him in wholeness of him. This isn't peace in God or through God. It is peace with God. You may say that sounds similar. It is, but it's also, it's also a big thing. Here's why. We talk about having peace with God and us moving toward God. There is a hard truth that we probably don't like to acknowledge, a hard truth that we need to talk about that you don't want to admit sometimes. But we're going to talk about it here for just a moment. If you find yourself without peace with God, if you find yourself and say, well, God and I are in conflict right now, or, or there's a dispute between God and I right now, I'm just going to be very honest with you. This is not a two-way battle. It's a one-way fight. And guess which side is the aggressor? Probably figured it out, right? Here's a hint. It's not God. It's not God. If we find ourselves without peace, it's not God. It's not a two-way battle. God's not at war with you if you're at war with him. How do I know that? Well, if you go on further in that passage in Romans 5, you come across verse 8, where it says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I think every Bible that I own, I have this verse highlighted, and I have underlined while we were still sinners, because I have a hard time understanding this verse. Why do I have a hard time understanding it? I believe it. Absolutely believe it, but I have a hard time <clears throat> getting a full grasp on it because I am a human who has had people hurt me and had people do things to me, and what do I typically do? I wait for them to apologize. I wait for them to come and say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Well, yeah, I'll forgive you. But I wait for them to make the move. Do I wish I didn't do that? I absolutely wish I did, but that's just my instinct and my nature. 
I might get over it later down the road, but I have a hard time with it. And I have a feeling I'm not the only one that has a hard time with this. When somebody has wronged us, we at the very least want them to acknowledge it. We want them to make some sort of admission, I messed up. But we have a hard time with this. And I read this verse, and it doesn't say that once we got our lives together and started walking back towards God, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. No, while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die on the cross for us. Verse 6, it says at just the right time. And in verse 7, it says that he sent him to die for the ungodly. And man, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around this. We like to talk about how we might take a bullet for one another. And it's easy to say you would take a bullet for somebody you loved or for somebody who's a good person. But if you're at direct odds with somebody else, you're in direct conflict with somebody else, it's hard to say you would take one for that person. Not to say you want something bad to happen to them, but you're probably not the one to jump up and take it. That's just our instinct. And I am so grateful And I praise God that he is not like us in those moments. That he sent his son to die on the cross for us while we were at odds with him. Yet we tend to blame him when things go wrong. I talked about this a few weeks ago. I'm not going to get too much into this. But whether it's a big thing, like a loss or a diagnosis or, or just some incredible pain that we're going through. Maybe a job loss or maybe just you feel like the way the world is crushing you. Or maybe it's something small, just some frustrations in life, or you, you still feel like you're stuck in a rut, or you know, there's just some friction between you and, and your son, or your, your parents, or a sibling. You just cry out all the time, God, why aren't you here? Why aren't you taking care of this? Why aren't you dealing with this and, and doing this for me? We're quick to point out that God is absent and that God is silent, but in reality, we are the ones who are absent because we are the ones who have walked away from him. Even if it's just a few steps, even if we've just barely drifted, because God doesn't move. God doesn't change. We change around him. And here's the, the truth of the matter, the reality of the matter. Our sin blinds us to that fact. Our sin convinces us that God has abandoned us, that God has left us. And that's not how it works. I like how William Newell said it. He says, our peace with God is not, between, it's not like between two nations at war, but as between a king and rebellious and guilty subjects. I kind of think about it like this. Imagine, some of you this may have happened, but imagine as a parent, you've got a teenage son or daughter. You get on to the son or daughter because they have done something wrong, and what's their response sometimes? I hate you! And they stomp off up the stairs and slam the door behind them. As parents, what do we do? We have one of two responses, right? You could fly up the stairs, pound on their door until they unlock it, and you yell at them, we do not slam doors in this house. Or you can patiently sit on the couch, wait for them to come down and say, I'm sorry, I messed up. Any guesses which parent I am? (laughs) Yeah, you know. (laughs) You know which parent I am. It's not the one that looks like God. I'll put it that way. No, God waits for us. I think he waits for us brokenhearted, but he waits for us. We see an example of this in in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, we see 
uh, Jesus give three parables in a row about an item that was lost, and each time that item increases in value, the last one is about a man with a lost son. You might know it better as the story of the prodigal son. And the story just kind of goes like this to summarize it. There's a man with two sons, and the youngest one says, I want to go ahead and get all my inheritance. This is pretty insulting to the father, because he's saying, I wish that you were dead so I could have everything I'm entitled to. That's what he's telling him. The father gives it to him, and the son goes off with all of his wealth and all of his riches, and he goes out and he just parties it all away, and he blows it all away, and and he, he buys friendships, and he buys happiness, but once his money runs out, that runs out, and he's left broken and empty and lonely. And it says, at one point, he is so hungry that he would eat what the pigs were being fed. And so I imagine at some point this son hits complete rock bottom that he decides to humble himself enough to go back home, not to beg that his father would give him everything again, but that his father would just give him a job on the farm as just a, a hand at the bottom of the totem pole. And as he's walking back to the father, the father has no doubt heard he's on his way back. People would see this, they would report this back, and as the father sees him coming, he runs out to him, not to scold him, Not to shame him, not to lecture him. He runs out and he wraps his arms around him and he throws a brand new coat around him. And he says, go get our best steer that we have because we're gonna throw the best best celebration, the best party we've ever had because my son who once was lost is now back, he's now found. And we read this story and folks, that is us. I think sometimes we read the story and we put ourselves in the shoes of the father to say, how are we going to welcome people back if they've wronged us? But how often are we putting ourselves in the shoes of the son? Humbling ourselves enough to say, you know what? I tried to make this work on my own. I tried to get peace on my own and it fell apart. And we want to come running back, but we're too embarrassed. We're too humiliated. We're too proud to do it. And we read in this story, the most valuable lesson we can, we can read of all is that no matter how far you have run, you can always come home. You can always come home. You can always come back to the Father. Coming back to God, grabbing that peace of God, it won't eliminate all the problems you have in the world. It it won't eliminate everything that you deal with. Jesus himself told us. He told us point blank, we're going to have problems in this world. But what it's going to do is it's going to put you on God's side as you face those problems. It's going to give you peace in the midst of your storm. And it's a peace that I think we don't fully understand because it's not a peace that we can create. It's not a peace where we just lay down our arms, we just lay down our weapons and quit fighting with somebody. Jesus tells us this on the night that he was betrayed. After he had washed the disciples' feet and told them he was going to leave and prepare a place for them and come back. On the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, in John 14, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give you peace as the world gives it. And then he repeats a command that God gave to Gideon thousands of years earlier. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. He gives them a promise that he's going to give a peace unlike anything else we can understand. Again, we like to think of peace as the removal of conflict. I'm not in dispute with anybody. I'm not at war with anybody, so I've got peace. We see nations fighting on the news, and they'll come to a peace treaty. That means they've decided to quit fighting. doesn't mean everything's good. No, this isn't what Paul's talking about when he says we have peace with God. It's not a removal of anything. 
Peace with God is a restoration back to the whole. It's taking something that was broken and making it complete once again. So let me ask you this question again. How's your peace? How's your peace? How is your internal self? That's the question that I kind of want to leave you with, but I want you to think about. And if you can't answer that question and say that it's great right now, start asking yourself, how can, how can we make it better? Because we're going to wrap up this series called Name Dropper, but before we do this, I would be remiss if I didn't mention just one more name to you. Name that goes above, I think, all these other names. All these names of God. The simple name of Jesus. We, we, we see this name, Jesus. And if you've come to church at any point in time, it's probably been mentioned over and over. We sing it in songs. We put it on signs. We call ourselves Christians. We bear the name Christ. But we stop and look at the name of Jesus. And I'm taken back to hundreds of years before Jesus was born. When God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah said in the very famous verse, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I've always thought about these as titles, job descriptions. This is what Jesus did. No, it's more than any of that. It's not a title. Like Jesus didn't wear this on a badge for all of us to see. No, this is a declaration of who he was going to be and who he was and who he is and who he forever will be. He is all of those things and more. And through him and only through him do we find true peace because only through him do we find true restoration and reconciliation with God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Again, I said this earlier. We don't like to admit it, but if we find ourselves away from God, God hasn't left us, we have left him. What happens is as we live a life that, that is of the world or focused on ourselves or focused on sin or anything other than God, we start to slowly build up a wall. And the higher that wall gets, the harder it is for us to see God. So we assume God's gone. But that's not what Paul's saying it happens here. We, we look at God and think, man, I've pushed God away. Even if we can put it on ourselves, we'll say that I pushed God away. No, you didn't. You pushed yourself away from God. And what Paul is telling us is that through Jesus, through Jesus, that wall can be removed. The higher we build our wall, man, what we're doing is we're just trying to elevate ourselves because we think maybe I can get up on that wall and I can be powerful. I can make myself the, the, the God of my own story. I can make myself the most important part of my life. That's what we do, whether we realize it or not. And that wall being removed reminds us of who Jesus is. Paul says in Philippians 2 that God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all names. Think about that. Talk about the names of God. And Jesus has the name that's above all other names. And he says that at that name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declared that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Paul's not saying this is a suggestion. He's making a statement. He's making a declaration, making a promise that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That's something we need to remember. The question isn't if we will bow before Jesus. The question is when. That's something I can make a promise to every single one of you, wherever you're at today. If this is your very first time in a church, your very first time online listening to a sermon, hearing about Jesus, every single one of us, one of these days, will bow before Jesus. Whether God calls us home through earthly physical death or whether he comes back to get his church. And here's the the question I gotta ask you. When that day comes, will you be ready? Will you have humbled yourself and submitted your life to him before then? Because if you haven't before then, it's gonna be too late. It's gonna be too late. And you can declare him Lord in that moment. But at that particular moment in time, it's too late to acknowledge that he really is the name above all other names. Proverbs 18 says that his name is a strong fortress. That's a fortress we need to put ourselves in, to wrap ourselves in because we've got him in us. He's the name above all other names. And it's not just the name of peace or power or counselor or provider. No, Jesus is the name that saves us from our sin and restores us back to the Father. He's the name that gives life. He's the name that gives redemption. He's the name that saves us from everything that we have done. Peter said in Acts 4 that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given by he- or under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So let me leave you with this thought today leave you with this challenge today. No matter where you are, get to know the name of Jesus more. If you're just hearing it for the first time, man, I would love to talk to you more about this name of Jesus. I would love to help you learn more about him because I, 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 I believe in it so much. I, I, I love the name of Jesus so much that I want you to know about it too. And I know there are many people in this church who feel the same way. Maybe you've known the name of Jesus for a long time. Man, get to know it more, deeper. Small groups are going to be starting here in a few weeks. Sign up for one. We, we don't even have the whole list of what groups and classes we're going to have yet. But on your connection card in your bulletin, you can fill it out. Put that you're interested. Matt and Phil will get those. They'll get in contact with you and get you set up in one. Maybe you've been in one for a while. You can get to know the name of Jesus more by teaching one, by leading one. I can tell you this, every time, whether it's a sermon, whether it's a lesson I do in a small group, every time I prepare to give a lesson, I take in more than I can give back out. It's just a a weird way that God has blessed me. I like to use it as a justification. My mom and my wife like to say that I'm a nerd. I think that's kind of personal, but, you know, I just love studying. And I love sharing that back. But I can promise you every time, it's such a blessing God shows me so much more. I mean, I would love to preach for two hours, but you guys, I think, have lunch to get to. Now, get to know the name of Jesus more. Maybe it's just getting involved in a community group or a home group and spending time around godly people and, and seeing more about Jesus because you see how they are. But I just want to leave you with this today. If, if you are somebody here who's here today and you say, I don't, I don't know Jesus. I don't know that name. 
I want to have a conversation with you. So would you do me a favor? Would you catch me out here after service or catch one of our other pastors on staff who's going to be out here after service? Or on your connection card, just write that and put your name. And I want to get in touch with you maybe tomorrow or Tuesday. Because I just want to talk to you more about Jesus. I want you to experience him the way I have experienced him. I want you to love him the way I love him. And get to know him the way I've known him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your son. We're grateful, Lord, that we can look at you and not just know you to know you. God, we can know you to get to know who you are so that we can, we can strive to become more and more like that. God, I pray all across the room, online today, God, wherever we're at, if it's our very first day hearing the name of Jesus or we've been hearing it our whole lives, that we would strive to know you more. We would strive to learn as much as we can and experience as much as we can. God, we're so grateful. I pray today too for those who are looking for peace. God, those who are struggling to find it. Even if they're struggling to find it in you right now because they, they, they just can't quite nail it down. God, you would speak to them. Open hearts and minds. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. That we would find that peace in you. God, that we would experience that in you. Not just to learn it, not just to know it, but to experience it. God, as a church, I would pray that if anybody is out there looking for it and they're wandering lost, we would help them find their way back to you. We would just gently guide them with love and mercy back to you. God, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to step into our time of communion. I was thinking about this earlier, how it says there in Romans that through Jesus, through his blood, we find peace. But we read other times too what all we get through his blood, redemption and reconciliation and restoration. We're justified in God's eyes. And I said this earlier, I, I saw this illustration once. This was actually with a, a youth group. But the guy held up a, a $100 bill, brand new $100 bill, perfectly crisp. And he said, who would like this? Everybody raised their hands. All the kids did. He took it and he crumpled it up in his hands. He threw it on the floor. He stomped on it. It was youth groups. He even spit on it. You know, you can do gross stuff when it's youth group. And he held it back up. Who wants this? But half the kids didn't raise their hands. He said, why don't you want it? It's still $100. He said, here's the point. You have been stepped on and crumpled up and spit on and maybe you've done it to yourself but God still views you as just as valuable as you were before you're just as valuable now as you were when he created you when he breathed life into you in your mother's womb now a hundred dollar bill would still spend the same anywhere you took it whether it's brand new or crumpled I guess as long as you didn't go to a vending machine God loves you and he values you and he treasures you. And in communion, we see that, that he went to the cross to restore all of that back to the way he created you, to restore that wholeness where we find peace.